Welcome to worship at Salem Alliance Church. Let's join Barbara Fletcher, associate pastor, as she begins. I bet a lot of you watch reality TV shows because there are just a lot of reality TV shows on these days. And uh, if you watch them, maybe you have picked up on something that seems kind of interesting to me. A lot of them are about rejection. I mean, that seems to be a sort of a bottom line thing. For example, um, there is the reality TV show, The Bachelor. You know, that's the deal where this, this guy that's usually quite handsome and has 25 women come, and he gets week after week to choose which ones are going to stay, which ones are one will be going, and the goal is in the end he finds a woman that he can marry. So week after week, these 25 gorgeous women stand in front of him and narrows the field down, and he gives a rose, and he gives a rose, and he gives a rose, and then somebody doesn't get a rose, and she is rejected. And as she leaves, when you look at the things they show on TV, she's crying, and it's so sad, and it doesn't matter. She's probably had five other boyfriends that have adored her. She feels rejected, and rejected. Rejection hurts. Doesn't matter who you are, rejection hurts. Um, personally, my favorite reality TV show is Survivor. I don't know how many of you watch Survivor, but I confess, I watch Survivor every week, and I have a, a group of family and friends, and we get together every Survivor night, and we watch together. We roll into the living room at about a quarter till the hour, and we leave five minutes after the show's over, and in between, we get a lot of laughs out of it. And it's great fun, but Survivor, you know, it's all about these people out on these islands, and they're trying to figure out who can outwit, outlast, and outplay everybody else, and make it to the end, and not be voted off. And in this season's show, there is this guy that we sort of see as a villain. His name is Russell. And if you've ever watched Survivor, you probably know Russell. He is so mean. And he says the most awful things about people and to people, for that matter. And uh, I was really chagrined when he was back at all. And then I was especially chagrined as he was back with a cross tattooed on his arm. And I thought, man, you don't act like a Christian at all. So anyway, here's rough and tumble Russell. And uh, a week and a half ago, Russell was voted off the island, and we cheered in our living room. We were so glad. Bye-bye, Russell. And then Russell, Mr. Tough Guy, takes his hat off, and he puts it over his face, and we say, he's crying. Russell's crying. We felt slightly guilty that we were cheering that he was gone, but uh, we said, you know, even Mr. Tough Guy Russell cries when he's rejected. Because rejection hurts. Doesn't matter who you are. I have a little grandson who has some special needs. And um, I have asked my Bible study off and on, please keep praying a bubble of protection over him. Because I, obviously being a grandma bear, don't want him hurt by anything. But I certainly don't want him to be hurt by rejection. Because rejection is a powerful and it's a painful thing. Doesn't matter if it's a woman on The Bachelor or Russell on Survivor or a little grandchild that I love desperately. Rejection is a painful thing. And you have all experienced it. Every single one of you, I've experienced it as well. 
It could have started in life really young. It could have started on a playground when other kids were chosen for the dodgeball team and you were the last one chosen or, and the first one hit with the ball. Or it could be it happened in the cafeteria at school when you sat down at a table and everybody sat at the other end and not next to you. Or it could be that it happened when you didn't make the sports team or make the special music group or when you got a rejection letter from a college that you really wanted to attend or maybe it happened even last week and you got a pink slip in your mailbox at work and you've been rejected from the job. Or maybe you still have your job but you didn't, you weren't chosen for the group that was chosen for a special project. Or maybe somebody else got the promotion in the office and you didn't. Or maybe you filed for a home loan and you didn't get it. Or maybe you have a friend that used to call but doesn't call anymore. Rejection. I could go on and on and on of listing what it looks like. But whenever it comes, however it comes, it's hard and it's painful. And perhaps nothing is more painful in life than family rejection. As we think about the Lord Jesus Christ, I think most of us are aware that he experienced a ton of rejection from religious leaders, from people in his hometown, from Pilate, from Herod. But maybe we don't realize so much that he experienced tremendous rejection from his own family. And so that's what I want to talk about this morning. Um, Kind of family rejection parts one, two, and three. And the first part I want to talk about occurs up around the Sea of Galilee. That's where in the early years of Jesus, three years of ministry, he was doing the majority of his ministry. And as you read about that in the Gospels, you know that it was a ministry on the fly. And the crowds were just coming by streams and hundreds and even thousands. And they were coming from the south of Israel up from Jerusalem and Judea to the north to see this guy that they'd heard about. And they were coming from Phoenicia to the north, a whole other country in Tyre and Sidon. They were coming down and crowds were crushing around from all of the towns around the Sea of Galilee and... Jesus was ministering in miracle after miracle after miracle and sermon after sermon after sermon, if you will. And the people couldn't get enough of him. And then we come to Mark chapter 3 where Jesus is going to have dinner with some of his disciples. They've gotten away from the crowds just to get to dinner. And let's read what happens in Mark chapter 3. Jesus entered a house and again a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him for they said, he's out of his mind. His own family went to take charge of him. And the Greek word for to take charge of is krateo, which really means to seize forcibly to get a hold of and take somewhere else. And and if you look at the geography of that area, Nazareth is a good 15 to 20 mile hike for this family. If Jesus is in the south of the Sea of Galilee, if he's north, it's a lot further than that. 
His family has made a wholesale effort to get to their brother, to their son, and to drag him forcibly back because they think he's crazy. And unfortunately, the scriptures don't tell us why they thought that. So you and I are just left to kind of guess, to kind of conjecture, to kind of try to climb in the skin of the people of that day. We're Monday morning quarterbacking, so we really don't understand this rejection. But what might they have been thinking? His mom, his brothers, his sisters. Is it possible that They had been highly influenced by the Jewish leaders that surrounded them because these were really godly Jews, this family of Jesus's. And their pastors, if you will, their leaders were totally rejecting Jesus. Very few were in the camp that supported him. So if their religious leaders, their pastors, their spiritual guides, if you will, are saying no to Jesus, surely they were influenced by that. Or perhaps they were shocked that Jesus had walked away from the security of a good job in a carpentry shop to the insecurity, the non-pay, if you will, of being an itinerant preacher and evangelist and healer. And maybe they were upset by that. This makes no sense. What is he thinking? Or maybe they thought, why in the world is he posing, if you will, as a rabbi, a spiritual leader, a spiritual teacher? He's never been trained. He has no academic background. He doesn't have religious school behind him. Or maybe they just plain wanted him back in the carpentry business. Maybe he had been a really huge piece of that business and they wanted him back there. Or maybe... They had been highly influenced by their neighbors, by their extended family, by the other relatives there in Nazareth. Because when we read about Nazareth and the first time Jesus went there, it didn't go well. He preached in the synagogue and it says he preached with power in a sense and some people were amazed. But overall, uh, they were outraged. Uh, This is just that carpenter, you know? This is just... Mary and Joseph's family. What's he doing? And we find out that they took him to the top of a cliff, preparing to throw him off to kill him because they didn't believe in him at all. Well, if that had been Jesus' first experience in Nazareth, and Jesus' family is back in Nazareth, and there's no TV, and books hadn't been printed yet, and there are no magazines and newspapers to read at night, what do you do? You talk and talk and talk and talk and talk and talk. And um, Maybe they just talked a lot and heard from their neighbors. Um, who does your brother Jesus think he is? Maybe that influenced them. We're not told. But what we do know clearly, is that they rejected him. And we come to what I would call rejection part two. And this happens when Jesus does, in fact, go back to Nazareth for a second visit. And he goes back and he preaches in uh, the synagogue there, which was his custom. And I'm going to read to you something about that experience, and then I'm going to show you uh, one verse on the slide, just because it's Jesus speaking, and you'll see how shocked he was. It says that Jesus left there and he went to his hometown accompanied by his disciples. And when the Sabbath came, Jesus began to teach in the synagogue and many who heard him were amazed. 
Where did this man get these things? They asked. What's this wisdom that has been given him that he even does miracles? Isn't this a carpenter? Isn't this Mary's son and the brother of James, Joseph, Judas, and Simon? Aren't his sisters right here in synagogue with us? And they took offense at him. And then Jesus said this. Only in his hometown, among his relatives, and in his own house is a prophet without honor. And Jesus was amazed at their lack of faith. I mean, isn't this just Jesus? He's got these four brothers and his sisters are right here. And it seems to us that a spiritual leader would come from a far more prestigious family than this, by implication. And Jesus was amazed that they didn't believe. And you and I are pretty amazed, really, as we Monday morning quarterback the situation with given the hundreds, if not thousands, of miracles that had happened already by that time. I mean, just a week and a half ago, I had an email from Jen Harris, who's one of our missionaries uh, from our church, and she serves the Lord down in Peru. And in her prayer letter, she's talking about all the amazing things and great things that are going on down there in Pucallpa, Peru, and she comes to the second to last paragraph, and I'm just reading along, and she says, and we had a short-term team here, and we held a healing service, which they commonly do, and she says, a lot of people were healed, and a mute girl began to speak, and I'm going, wow, tuck in in this little paragraph at the end of this email, and I'm like, amazed. The living God is still healing today and just reading that email increased my faith yet again. And so I I look at this family that rejects Jesus and it's just kind of hard for me to imagine it. But then we come to what I'll call rejection part three. Jesus is still healing and teaching and up there in the northern region of Israel. And uh, it's time for the Feast of Tabernacles, which means that uh, godly Jewish people would make their way down to Jerusalem to worship at the temple. And uh, it's recorded for us in John chapter 7 that Jesus' brothers went to him and said, you know, um, any sort of prophet who's anybody goes and does his thing in the heart of where our faith is. That would be Jerusalem. So why don't you just go down there and uh, do your thing down there? They knowing full well, as did everybody else, that down there was high risk. Down there were people who wanted to kill Jesus. And we come to verse 5 in John chapter 7 At the end of these brothers saying this to Jesus, you ought to go down there. And it says, for even his own brothers did not believe in him. They did not believe in him. It's confusing. I've thought about what it would have been like to live with Jesus growing up. I mean, they had lived with him for 30 years. They had seen him day in and day out. And Jesus, we know from the scriptures, because he was fully God and yet fully man, lived a fully sinless life. He never did anything wrong. Well, it seems like you might notice that if you live with him. Um, It seems like you might notice that whenever the family has an argument, it's Jesus that 
brings everybody back together. Seems like you might notice that, as Jesus says, a heart of compassion for hurting people. It seems like you just might notice that when Joseph, uh, Jesus we might call uh, the father in the home, but not Jesus' father, but his sibling's father, when Joseph died, that um, I'm, I'm guessing that Jesus was the one that really reached out to take care of his mom, oldest son and all. I wonder if Jesus wasn't the one that did run the carpentry shop and um, surely did it with perfect integrity. It seems like they would have noticed. It seems odd that though Mary had been told before he was born that you should name him Jesus because he is going to be the Savior. Um, And by the way, he is the Son of God, this son of yours. Seems like she might have mentioned that to the family. But if she did, they didn't get it. And he wasn't the kind of savior, apparently, in this ministry era that they expected. Because their rejection keeps going. And we find it, I think, in a graphic way at the cross. Uh, There's Jesus having suffered the torment of all those trials, all those beatings, all that torture. Now the agonizing torture of the cross. And as he hangs on the cross, he looks down on the people around it, and his mother's there. But his brothers aren't, apparently. No mention of his sisters being there. In fact, Jesus says, it says, when he saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, that would be John, the apostle, standing nearby, he said to his mother, dear woman, here is your son. And to the disciple John, here is your mother. And from that time on, this disciple took her into his home. Seems to me if his brothers had been there, Jesus would have said, take care of mom, will you? But instead, he handed her into the hands of a man of faith. Because his brothers still rejected him. And yet Jesus pursued them. Jesus in resurrection appearances made appearances to uh, like a crowd of 500, it says on one occasion. The road to Emmaus, a couple men, appeared to the disciples a few times as a group. And there were just a couple individual one-on-ones of resurrection appearances that are recorded in the Bible. And one of them was to his brother James. And much to my dismay, the Bible doesn't tell us what they said, what they talked about, what Jesus um, said to him and and, um, talked to him about faith and believing. But what we can pretty well figure out is that that resurrection appearance, that resurrection conversation, completely, utterly, totally changed the course of James' life. Because James goes from being a a doubter to a disciple, if you will. He goes from being a rejecter of Christ to being literally the lead pastor of the church at Jerusalem. And we find as we open the book of Acts, which tells us all about everything that happened after Jesus died, rose again, and ascended into heaven, we get into the book of Acts and we see that in right in Acts chapter 1, there's a group of people praying in an upper room all together. It's a bunch of disciples and a bunch of followers. And it says there that James is there and so are Jesus' other brothers. 
So it appears that the family that rejected Jesus after that resurrection appearance to James came to deep faith in Jesus. And so James went on to be the lead pastor of the church in Jerusalem and we find him um, being the person that brings together a dispute and manages it in Jerusalem and it's recorded in Acts 15. We find him in Acts 12 after Peter had been in prison and he was miraculously released and Peter gets out and he says, go tell James I'm out. We find in Galatians that he is called literally by the Apostle Paul, James is called the pillar of the church. James, from doubter to full disciple, from rejecter to lead pastor. And James wrote the book of James that you and I have in the New Testament. Uh, And it's probably the most practical book we have in all of Scripture to tell us kind of how to really live the Christian life, straight on language, and this is how you do it. And who better to write that than somebody that lived with Jesus for 30 years and followed his itinerant ministry to some degree for three more after that? Well, this is the way Jesus lived. I would have thought he would have been thinking. So this is the way we should live. And so it is that James says to us very practically in James 1, everyone should be quick to listen and slow to speak and slow to become angry. Be quick to listen. I bet Jesus was quick to listen. Slow to speak. I'm sure he was slow to speak and very slow to become angry. And then James goes on a bit later in his book and he talks about the tongue. And this is what he says, the tongue is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It corrupts the whole person, sets the whole course of his life on fire, and is itself set on fire by hell. Wow, strong language. But I wonder, is James thinking about himself? Is it not possible that his tongue had talked and talked and talked and talked and put down his brother and said, don't believe in him. Maybe he had influenced his family and influenced other people that don't follow him. So maybe he writes that out of personal experience. He knows the destruction a tongue, a loose tongue can bring. And then he says as well in another part of his book, faith without deeds is dead. Don't just talk about your faith. Live it out. Live it out. Sort of the show and tell gospel that we talk about a lot around here. There are two points that I want to make about Jesus' experience of family rejection. During that season when his family would have nothing to do with him except to think that he had literally lost his mind and embarrass him in public, literally, by trying to drag him away, uh, Jesus received another family from God. And he talks about it in Mark chapter 3, verse 33. Who are my mother and my brothers, he asked. And he looked at those sitting in a circle around him and he said, well, here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and my sister and my mother. In other words, God gave him a family of faith to fall into when his own family rejected him. It makes me think as I ponder that passage about 35 years ago when my husband and I left St. Louis, Missouri to move out here to Salem. 
And frankly, I didn't want to come because my whole family was back there, except that it was clear that God wanted us to come. And I still remember very, very clearly um, when somebody gave me a verse, and, and it was as if it were emblazoned by God himself, and it was from Mark 10, verse 30, where God says, or Jesus says, if anyone leaves mother or father or sisters or brothers for my sake, in other words, following me, I will give a hundredfold back, basically. And so it is when we came to Salem and we quickly landed at Salem Lions Church, this family of God became an unbelievable gift and has been for 35 years. And so when I see that Jesus, in a sense, fell into the arms of a family of God, I get what that feels like, and many of you get what that feels like as well. It's a phenomenal gift. A phenomenal gift. So the first thing I want to say about Jesus' rejection is when his family rejected him, he had the family of God. The second thing I want to say is this. Um, Jesus did not let that rejection define his life in any way at all or derail his call. He didn't let it define his life by turning him into a bitter and angry person that rejects, I'll reject my family if they reject me. No, he didn't go there. And he didn't let it derail his life. He went on with a call that God had put on his life and the call to be your savior and to be my savior. We've looked at Jesus' life and the rejection, but I want to turn a corner for a few minutes and talk about what does rejection look like in your family? Or in mine. There are many, many ways that we could define it or describe it. But some of the ways are this. Favoritism. Ridicule. Sarcasm. Maybe men is a joke, but it doesn't feel very funny. Or maybe it's a comment uh, somebody made years ago or maybe last year or maybe last week. You, you don't have what it takes. You're not going to be very good at that. And that's just emblazoned on your soul and it's affecting you terribly. Or maybe it's somebody that says, you know, I really think that's a dumb idea to pursue that job or that career. Or maybe it's somebody in your family that never comes to the family events at your house. And that hurts. Or maybe it's somebody who has events at his or her house but never invites you. And that's real rejection. Or maybe rejection in your family looks at being, like being yelled at or being devalued as a person or even being abused. Or maybe rejection in your family looks like somebody um, who committed adultery. A spouse. I mean, I could say had an affair, but I don't really like that phrase because it minimizes the reality. Or maybe rejection in your family is somebody that says, I want a divorce. Rejection, it just has so many different faces in family systems. But it always hurts. 
I've been impacted over the year, wa- years watching a man I know very well who chose ministry as a career, but he's the only one in his family that did that. The rest of them have another career, kind of career all the same. And uh, they don't have an overt, his father has never overtly said you shouldn't do that, but let's just say he's been separated in many ways at different times. And I've watched the pain of that. He hasn't let it derail his life. It hasn't let it define his life, but it's been painful. Or I think of a child who suffered horrific child abuse and whose story I have in my hands, now an adult, like seven or eight single-space pages. And I'm just going to read you a few sentences from it because, frankly, it's very disturbing. But it's a picture of tremendous, unspeakable rejection. My mother abused me physically, sexually, emotionally, and mentally. She began to have delusions that her ex-boyfriend and I were plotting to kill her, so she began to make attempts on my life. She tried to overdose me with medication, to strangle me, to drown me, to stab me. She attacked me with a hammer. One time she hit me over the head with a heavy ceramic coffee cup and split my head open. She goes on to describe the way her mom tried to sew that together without going to the ER room so nobody would know. And when this case finally hit the Lynn County um, caseworkers in child abuse, um, they said it's the worst case that they had on their books up to that point. And certainly that experience of rejection beyond imagining um, affected this young woman's life. Derailed her off and on into her own use of drugs or alcohol for a while. But there is a God in heaven who pursued her. Pursued her first as a young child, pursued her again as a teenager, and pursued her again as an adult. And she now walks deeply with God, lives and breathes the word of God, is being mentored herself, but mentors many other women as well. Because she has not let that rejection define and permanently derail her life. Rejection. Um, takes me back to my husband's uh, suicide almost 10 years ago, which frankly um, felt to my children and me like pretty much the ultimate rejection. There were many emotions to surround that, dozens, but rejection was right near the top of the list. And so we had a choice to make. Were we going to let that level of rejection define our lives, be bitter, be angry, be victims the rest of our lives? Were we going to let it derail our lives? Or were we going to lean into the arms of a loving God who redeems all measure of rejection and brokenness? And certainly our choice was we will lean into the arms of God. And we have found him utterly faithful. Completely, completely faithful. And I would ask you, what about your rejection? Are you going to let it define you? Are you going to let it derail you? Or will you too fall into the arms of a loving God and into the family of God? And let us together walk to a place of wholeness and health. Because that is the heart and the longing of God.
Shall we pray? Oh, Jesus, we worship you because you chose to come to earth and you didn't stay up in heaven, but you came down here and you suffered just like we do. You suffered rejection upon rejection upon rejection. In fact, you're still suffering rejection from people on this planet. And so it is that you understand us. You understand the pain of it. You understand how it can live with us, how it could derail us, how it could define us but you also know how to rescue us. And I pray, oh God, for all of us that you would have mercy and that you would heal the brokenness that rejection brings in life. And you would cause us to know that not only do you understand, but you are the God who wants to heal and wants to set us on a life that is strong and and, uh, empowered by the living Christ who indwells us. You've been listening to Barbara Fletcher, Associate Pastor at Salem Alliance Church. If you've enjoyed this message, we'd love for you to be our guest at our worship service on our main campus at 5th and Market Streets in Northeast Salem. Worship services are Saturday at 5 and 6.30 p.m. and again on Sunday at 8, 9.30 and 11 a.m. If you'd like to receive a free Bible and more information on how to become a Christ follower, feel free to call our office at 503-581-2129. We'd love to know how we can serve you. And once again, that's Salem Alliance Church at 5th and Market Streets in Northeast Salem.